Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Here in the Northern Rockies, dark winter months are outlasted in basements, dens, and nooks, where kindred souls gather together to share intel, swap fly patterns, and relive the memories from seasons past. This gathering spot, known locally as the February Room, is the inspiration for this podcast. No matter the season, the door is always open to those with a fly fishing story to tell. Brought to you by CD Fishing USA, the North American distributor for composite development fly rods and accessories. 40 years of Kiwi ingenuity and graphite technology now available at cd-fishing.us or your local CD USA dealer. Follow us on Instagram, YouTube, and Facebook. And remember to go fishing. Here's your host, the Carnops, and this is the February Room. In high school during career day, we had people from the medical field, finance department, probably some people from corporate America. But we never had anyone talk to us about fishing and how that passion could be a job. My next guest is Jesse Colton, owner of X Flats in Ixcalac, Mexico. Uh, we both graduated from the same high school, and we're both doing what we both love. So it's great to have him on the podcast and talk about his fishing and his fishy career. Thanks for joining me today, Jesse. Hi, Lauren. I'm really excited. Thanks so much for having me. What a what a small world, huh? Such a small world. And um, you know how we like to start this podcast? We always kick it off with a story. So if you have one that you can share, that would be awesome. Um, sure. Yeah. So let's see. As you mentioned, Lauren, I am the owner of um, the x Class Lodge down in Ishkalak, where we're primarily a, a permit fishery down there. That's what everybody loves to fish for. And and being the lodge owner down there, you would think that I would, you know, get a lot of opportunities to fish. And even though I do get some, I wouldn't say I get a ton. Um, it's a lot of just like hearing about the bite all the time. So 
on one particular day, we do a Saturday to Saturday um, week there. So everybody comes in on Saturday and then they leave and the next room comes in the same day. But on one Saturday, we had a real late arrival. So myself and three of my guides there, it was like mid-season and thank God we were super packed this year, but we were getting pretty burnt out, you know, towards towards the end of March, early April. Um, and so we decided, hey, you know, we got the new boat. Let's take it out. Um, it's Everything's fishing great. All the clients are super happy. You know, what's nice about Ishklak is it's a big fishery, really. And it's in such a small pressure there. You know, it's really just a few boats out on the water every day. So um, we're like, yeah, let's go for it. <laughs> and so um, one of my guides, Andres, um, Andres Castro, it was a really unfortunate, sad story, but his his dad actually passed away from COVID, who was one of the first oh. independent guides in Ishklak. His dad, his aunt, and both of his grandparents all in like a month this summer. It was... No, um, that's horrible. I, I know, it was so sad. And he's such a such a sweet guy. Um, so him, myself, and two other of our guides decided to go out. And Andres is like, I really want to fish with you, bud. Like, it's been so long. We've been so busy with work. We hadn't had a chance to hang out. And so... Um, I was like, absolutely, but I'm pulling half the time and, and you know, I want to see you catch a fish. And he's laughing. And, and so we go out into the bay. We're the only boat out there. It's about like a little 20-minute run from our lodge sits right on the Caribbean, which we fish a lot on the front side there too. But um, today there was a little bit of wind, so or that day rather. And so we went down into the cut, went into the bay, and right away Andres is like, all right, you're up first, bud. Andres is pulling along and spots a school of, of tail and permit. And he, you know throws the anchor down real quick and hustles me out of the boat and we walk over to him and we hustle him around a little bit and eventually boom one goes tight um and we celebrate super hard because anytime you know you get a permit to eat a fly it's always a cause for celebration in my opinion um and so we're landing the fish and andres is like really anxious to tail the fish you could tell like he just wanted it and the fish still had a lot of juice it wasn't a huge fish it was probably like in between a 10 and 15 pound fish, which they're sporty. Um, and so he's trying to tail the fish, trying to tail the fish. Eventually, like early in my opinion, like wham, snatches down, tails the fish. We're all super happy. And all four of us are in the water together and we're celebrating and he hands me the fish. Immediately I drop it. It just like slips out of my hands, you know? Um, and the fish had so much energy. It ran around all four of us and took my Helios three into about six pieces. Just wham, 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 wham. <laughs> Um, shattered the rod and we um, hand lined the fish back in essentially like with the fly line because the fly was still in the mouth which was you know we were it was sort of bittersweet Um, but we we ended up taking pictures of the fish and and we let it go and we were celebrating and we're walking back to the boat so we're walking back to the boat and we're just celebrating you know we're talking about um, Andres's dad and we're just talking about how lucky we are to to live in this just paradise and Right then, boom, there's another school of fish, tailing, tailing, tailing. Super sunny, beautiful, clear water day. And I just like, you know, run up to the boat because my rod's broken. We re-rig one of our tarpon rods. We have two rods left now in the boat because we broke one. Gosh. And I stuff one of the rods in, in, in actually not Andres' hand. It was Eric's hand, another one of our guides. He was next. So I stuffed in Eric's hand. He ran up there and, you know, me and Andres walked back to the boat to rig up the other rod. And all of a sudden we hear Eric and, and Giovanni, the other guy with us, just yell. You know, we look over and Eric's boom, bent on and fish is on, running super far, and they're celebrating and we just are, we're like, wow, you know, you know, hook two permit inside of a half hour, like this is crazy. <laughs> um and so as they're fighting that fish, 
you know, Andres is, I'm rigging the rod. I think, and Andres is like, oh, yes, yes, you know, points out, and there's another school of fish over there. And we just couldn't believe it. Andres runs over. I go over with Eric to help him tail his fish, and I sort of forget Andres is out there fishing. And right before I tail Eric's fish, we just hear Andres like scream from across the bay. He was probably about 150 yards, 200 yards away from us at that point. He has had been sort of hunting, stalking these fish, and we look over, and sure enough, he's running a permit out, you know, to the horizon, and it was, it was amazing. We all just were dying laughing, oh and just laughter took over our bodies for some reason. I tail Eric's fish, and I'm handing it to him, and I'm like, great, I'm gonna go over and um, help Andres. And as I do that, I'm like walking over to Andres, and I sort of all of a sudden kind of hear some commotion behind me, and I see Eric take the fly out of the fish's mouth and give the rod to Giovanni because there was a, that same school of fish that Eric had hooked one out had circled back around. Um, so as I run over, I'm like, geez, I tell Eric, I'm like, wait with your fish. You know, what's nice about permit, as long as you keep them in the water, they're super just durable, awesome fish. Once they're so hard to catch, but once you put your hand on that tail, you know, except for the one that broke my rod, they, uh, <laughs> they tend to really be fine spending some time with you if you handle them well. Um, so I told Eric, I was like, hold the fish. It'd be great to get a picture of you and you and Andres and remember this day. And so I run over to Andres and the, his fish, Andres's was the biggest. And it was just like a really sporty land. Like he's like running around this log. I'm trying to tail this fish. It goes, goes on for a little while. And same scenario, just before I tail that fish from way across the bay, we hear Giovanni, who we call Kisi. He's this tiny little Mayan guy. He can't be over, you know, four feet tall. He's up to his neck in water. But I see his rod. All I see is his rod just bending and him just yelling. Um, and we had the, you know, that third fish on, technically the fourth on of the day. And so I, I land on Drace's fish. I'm getting a good workout because I'm moving all across. The, you know, if you ever walked in a white sand bay, it's a little bit of work to walk through those flats. And um, I run over to Kisi. And we, we eventually tail Kesey's fish and we get to take a picture of, of those guys with the triple up um, and a video that I took, I'll never forget, where they release all their fish together and all of them are just jumping, splashing in the water, going crazy. And it was just that moment for me as a lodge owner to, to just soak everything in, to enjoy like these guys that are working hard, you know, busting their asses for me after having such a tough year with COVID now, it just was like that moment of like, we're back. Life is back. Um, and I think we could have caught more fish that day. It was probably 11 o'clock at that point. And we just went home and we had and, and drank beers and, and just talked about it, you know, and we'll, I think we'll always remember that day together, the four of us. Yeah. I mean, I totally agree. It seems that kind of life has been taken away and you're like, what are we doing? And especially when people lose loved ones due to COVID and then to have a magic magical moment like that kind of makes you brings you back to why why you are here and why you are doing what you are doing um kind of going back with what we're saying with, with what we were talking about earlier about you know how we both kind of grew up in a place where fly fishing wasn't really talked about no one was like hey jesse go grab your fly rod this weekend let's go hang out and go fishing i'm curious about your journey on how you especially going from colorado and then being an owner in um Ishkalak. Yeah, definitely. I, I totally agree. Even though, you know, being in sort of a fishy state, it wasn't like um, a talked about common sport. It certainly wasn't cool. Um, in in junior high, there was a couple teachers, Mr. Milliron and Mr. Babcock, that had started a little fly tying club um, that just taught us like to tie these little flies. And my best friend, um, Chad Sperry, who still is my best friend to this day, and, and 
and we guided for a lot of years together, got me into it. Um, and that was in junior high. And I kind of like quickly picked it up and put it down. And just like, you know, through high school, I was sort of just like focused on sports or whatever um, and not fishing. And then right after high school, you know, I, I kind of gave college an effort. And I think um, I could have given it a better effort. I think if I were to go back today, I'd probably <laughs> be more successful. But I was sort of just like indulging in the fun parts of college and not really putting um, any anybody's money to good use at that point. And so Chad and I talked after our freshman year and we both moved back um, to Vail and we wanted to be fly fishing guides. That's what we wanted to do. And so we just fished like crazy, skied like crazy. And, uh, by the summer of, um, 2011, um, 2012, sorry, summer of 2012, we started guiding. Um, and then that was really, I think that moment where I went from like having jobs to having a job that I felt like was something totally different where it wasn't just me trying to get this paycheck. It was like me doing something where like, I was like, whoa, I sort of feel like I'm good at this, you know? Yeah. And I sort of feel like I'm able to connect with these people, whether the fishing's good, whether the fishing's bad. Um, and I remember I, you know, saved up money to spend $800 on this ore certification. In in the state of Colorado, not like in Montana, you need a ore cert to, to be a commercial float guide for fly fishing. So the same ore cert that like a rafting guide would need. Okay. And I saved up money for that and I got it. And I think that $800 of education um, to see what's grown from that has just been crazy, you know? So that was big for me to, you know, as opposed to spending, you know, this amount of money on college, um, it was $800 that took for me to to basically start a career um, that has brought me, you know, 10 years down the road has brought me to some amazing places. So, um yeah. So then I, you know, guided for years and years and, and eventually um, some older guide mentors were like, you got to get into salt. You got to get into salt. You know, eventually one of the places we went on that journey was Ishkalak. Um, and I just fell in love head over heels, you know, like you do with a place sometimes. What made you fall in love with it? I mean, I, I became very permit obsessed very quick. Once you see them in the water, it's hard not to. But I think that was sort of like the surface level. I would call the, the permit thing sort of the infatuation. And, and then the deep love was sort of just this community and this, I just didn't realize a place like this still existed. I mean, it is literally just dropped right on top of paradise, you know, the Caribbean, um, the Mesoamerican Reef, Chetamal Bay. And then with all that there, there's still just this tiny little undeveloped um, village of like 350 people. And it's super safe. And it's super just welcoming and, and everybody is just like happy. Like I would say that, you know, people don't have a ton down there, but compared to the States, it feels like everybody has enough. You know, one of the culture shock things I, I ha- that happens to me when I get home to the States is, you know, flying to Denver and, and, and just see the amount of homelessness there yeah. is, is, is pretty shocking at, at times. Um, and to not really have that in this third world developing little town is, is, is interesting to me, but, um, but no, really that's a side note, but really I just kind of fell in love with the whole culture, vibe, food, and, and definitely the humans, you know, that was the big one. Well, and when you went there, you didn't even know the language. You didn't speak Spanish, correct? Yeah, correct. I, I never took Spanish in school. <laughs> I wish I had of, um, all the pretty girls I remember were in Spanish class and I was in, <laughs> I don't know what I was doing with that, but, um, I always felt like one of the 
the, the educational muscles I could sort of flex growing up was was language. I, I did do fairly well in German and and my mom spoke fluent German and that was like her career as a young woman. And so oh, like- So it you was were fun. taking German in high school. Right. Oh, okay. Correct. Yeah. <laughs> and so, I mean, um, but I liked language. I always remember being like, wow, I really, I enjoy this as, as far as, you know, in terms of like science and math was just like, just getting like hit over the head with a book, you know, but- um, so yeah, I didn't have Spanish, any Spanish skills really like a little bit, like some kitchen Spanish from working in restaurants, but, um, and down in Ishkalak, it is like virtually no English. There's a, you know, a handful of people in town, maybe. So how long did it take you to pick up the language? Oh, you know, it's, um, language Spanish is like fishing, like surfing, like anything. It's, it's, it's not even close to mastered. It's, it's something I'm working on every single day. Um, and I've been doing that for, for three years. And I think after the first year, the funniest part was like, I have all, you know, a bunch of employees and friends and people that work for me and work with me. Um, and it was like after a year that I think they really started to like learn my personality, which was bizarre. You know, like I had all these friends and they must've just thought I was like the most boring dude alive. But, um, as soon as I started to like land a couple jokes here and there, or like just be cheeky or just like whatever, be sarcastic. Um, Because, you know, Mexican people, maybe, you know, Lauren, are like the most playful people ever. Like there's there's rarely a serious minute in like I have to force seriousness into our guide meetings and into our staff meetings and stuff like that, because they're just so playful and fun all the time. Like bad attitudes are just not tolerated down there. Um, And so for me, it was just a huge thing that I needed to be able to participate in that. You know, I needed to I needed to be able to um, be there, be there as a human being and not just like think the other experiences they've had down there and similar to other places, there's a lot of business owners that come from the States and sort of just kind of juice the lemon, so to speak a little bit. And they, and, and some of them give back and some of them don't and what have you. But, um, I definitely wanted to be an owner and a person that was a part of the community and someone that, you know, people knew and felt comfortable joking with and, and kind of not just back and forth when there was money to be made or not, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And now a brief message from our sponsors. Introducing the Trist All-Fly Kit, Composite Development's latest game-changing innovation. Utilizing the same butt section, the All-Fly morphs from 5-weight to an 8-weight via interchangeable sections. Need a little more length? Pop the extender into place and the 9-foot rod becomes a 10-footer. All housed within an ingenious tri-folding magnet rod tube, the All-Fly is the most versatile fly fishing tool ever devised, negating the need for multiple rods. Switch from delicate presentations with tiny parachutes to hucking gaudy coneheads. This package must be seen to be believed. Go to cd-fishing.us, click the video tab, and see the Trist All-Fly in action. And remember to go fishing. I imagine, though, going from Vail and kind of doing that type of fishing, uh, mountain streams, um, and then going to saltwater, that's a huge transition. What did you feel was like the hardest? I mean, other than the language barriers, which I would find that to be very difficult, um, I guess, fishing wise, what did you have to change your mentality when um, transferring from the mountain rivers to saltwater? That's a that's a great question. And I think, you know, most of the time when I've been asked that question, I used to say the casting, the yeah. the vision muscle of being able to see really well and cast really well. Um, but really, I think as I've as I step back now and examine my freshwater fishing career versus my salt, the biggest difference between those two for me, one hundred percent, is 
the ability to understand the food source. Um, so like fly fishing in freshwater, mountain streams, rivers, the food source is, is often right in front of you. I mean, you can pick your fly based on the hatch that's hitting you in the face, right? Or you can turn over rocks and be like midge, stonefly, blue wing, here we go, you know? Um, and it's a little bit easier for me in a freshwater experience to decipher what that food source is. Where the bugs in saltwater, you know, the sea insects are shrimp, crab, baby lobster. Um, they don't hatch out of the water. They're extremely hard to find. I'll go snorkeling, looking for them everywhere, trying to understand what it is that these permit want to eat um, at different times because their food does change. I mean, I think overall, most people kind of tend to believe that here's our batch of permit flies and they're just going to eat one of them. And this is the year round thing. We'll throw all of them. But I've watched these permit change over seasons about what they want to eat. Um, and that, you know, dissecting and getting into what you want to, what the permit wants to eat is is really the only way to, to go about catching them other than working on your casting skills and that kind of stuff, you know? Well, that'll make my husband really happy to hear because he's been trying to catch a permit every time he goes out there. And he's probably caught like a really tiny one, but he is having the hardest time. So he's always like, I'm, I try and throw them everything, you know, crab patterns. And, <laughs> yeah. and it's in like the fact that we started this story with that crazy success story about catching permit. Um, it, they are such such hard fish because their mouths are so tiny. Uh, what makes you decide that permit is kind of your go-to fish? Like, what do you love about them? Um, yeah, I mean, they're, they're total unicorns, right? right? And that story that we told at the beginning just horribly skews what permit fishing is all about. <laughs> the only reason we were able to enjoy that so much is all of the pain and hours and desperation and insecurity and all that stuff that goes into permit fishing because they're so hard to catch and so hard to trick and so hard to feed. Um, and then when you do feed them, they're easy to miss. So yeah, for your husband, like there's no, no shame in all uh, about not catching permit. And like, I always tell people that, you know, they, they come to Ishklak after seeing all these photos of all these fish and what those photos don't say is, you know, how much pain and time and sweat and luck there was into, into that, event happening because at the end of the day, the fish still has to choose to eat the fly. Um, and so that you can do everything right in the world with permit. You can pick the right fly. You can make the right cast. You can have the right boat set up. You can do everything perfect and it still probably won't happen. Um, and that's what people hate about it. And that's what I just adore about it, to be honest. I need that fish to torture me, you know? That's like how we kind of like life, right? If it was too exactly. easy, we'd try and find something else that's going to make it a little bit more difficult. You know, I was just about to say, because I think a lot of people have expectations if uh, you're going with any guide that, hey, I'm paying you money. So my expectations is that you're going to have me catch some fish. Uh, and that's never, that's, you know, just because you pay someone to take you fishing doesn't mean that's going to be a hundred percent guarantee that you're going to catch a fish. How do you get those expectations for guests coming up? Like, Hey, just want to let you know, like the chances of you actually catching a permit are pretty, pretty low. Or like, how do you set those ex expectations? That's such a great question because I think more than anything, that is my job. You know, people always ask me like, oh, so you're guiding down there. No, no, I'm not guiding. Like all of our guides are from Ishkalak, nowhere else. Yeah. We do everything we can just to support the economy of that town. 
Um, my job down there is a expectation manager that should be on my business card. I mean, that's <laughs> literally what I do. And it starts with, you know, the reservation process. So like when people call me up um, or when they call Yellow Dog or one of the agents that book us, like I always um, sort of try to reassure the fact that like, you're only buying the opportunity to potentially have good weather, to potentially find these fish, to try to catch them. Um, Ishkalak does have an extremely high turnover rate. Like we didn't have a single week this year that we did not put our hands on a permit, which was crazy. Wow. And that was not my experience the first two years there. I don't, something changed. Perhaps it was the pandemic, perhaps it was this, but even as this streak was going on through bad weather, through everything, um, I would always remind our guests like, you know, it's if we catch one permit this week, we're going to celebrate it. Um, if we don't, we're going to just enjoy the opportunity of fish. That's how I mark the success of of any week is is opportunity, um, not in, you know, actually putting our hands on these permits. Yeah, I mean, I think that's like the hardest thing about being anyone in a position where you're taking people fishing is that sometimes their expectations are a lot higher. And, and then there's so many other elements that are against you, like you said, weather and are the fish eating what hatch is going on. And also, like, maybe they just don't, they don't want to eat whatever you're throwing, like, maybe they're over it. <laughs> oh, they're, they're, the, they're so moody. Like, I love them, but they are just the moodiest creatures ever. Um, and when they're in the mood to eat, it's great. And when they're not, it's pretty painful because one thing about Ishkalak is, is you can talk to other people that have been there. Cause obviously my opinion is biased, but there's tons of permit there. If you have good weather, you are going to be in front of permit casting at them that much. I do guarantee there is the occasional like random spawn where they disappear off the flats and it's beautiful weather. And you're like, what happened? But 99% of the time when we have good weather in Ishkalak, you're casting at permit. Um, that's just the way it is there. And and, but you know, how their mood's going to be, people want to know they're so obsessed with the moon phase or they're obsessed yeah. with the tide or with this. And, and those are factors, but the number one factor by far is weather. That's the factor, you know, um, I keep a permit journal, um, and which for a long time didn't have much in it. Um, because really the only things you can learn from permit fishing are, are the successes, when, when you have a failure, there's lessons to be learned there. But a lot of the failures, as you start to get good at it, you don't have a reason for why they didn't eat the fly. Yeah. Maybe it was the fly. Maybe it was your leader construction. Maybe they saw the shadow of the boat. Maybe they just got in a fight with their buddy and they don't feel like eating right now. I have no idea. You know what I mean? So all you can really learn from are the successes. And the successes are just when you feed a fish, whether it breaks off, whether it spits, whether you miss the eat, whatever. When you feed a fish, you did something right. And so I always document it down. And I, I, you know, I write down like the weather pattern that day and the temperature and whether I was on the ocean or the bay or all that stuff. Um, and the only really consistency that there is, is, you know, 90% of the feeds I've had come when you have light, you know, um, it's sight fish and you need to be able to see them, you know? I absolutely love that you're keeping a journal. I think that's just such a smart way to do it because that way you can kind of keep consistent and also to see how, uh, weather and climate and everything is changing and how that's affecting your business. I think that's such a brilliant move. Um, yeah. I know we're talking right now. You're actually back in our hometown, Colorado Springs, correct? Yeah, that's right. Actually, Lauren, I was in Colorado Springs yesterday, seeing my folks for the first time um, since the pandemic, since before the pandemic. And I actually drove back up to Vail um, last night. So I'm back in Vail. Oh my gosh. was it? Did it feel so good to see them? It was crazy. It was amazing. Yes. Yeah. It was, I hadn't hugged my parents in, you know, 
since like six months before the pandemic started. So it was like, you know, late 2019, the last time I gave them a hug, you know? Isn't that crazy? And especially probably after having been in um, Ishkalak, where it seems like um, a lot of people who were lost during COVID and must have felt really good to probably get your arms around them and just being like, oh, how grateful you kind of get into those situations when they've been away, when they've been taken away from you for so long too. Without a doubt. I mean, that is the ultimate silver lining of COVID for me, right? Yeah. It's like I was always kind of that one in the family that was like hard to get to the family vacation. <laughs> late to Christmas. I was late to Thanksgiving. I couldn't make it. I was here. I was there. And now I'm just like in a group text with my family, like, when are we getting together? Like, when are we going back to South Carolina? Like, let's, you know, I just like missed everybody so much. I know usually you only get that level of understanding after losing somebody. Yeah. Um, and COVID definitely gave myself and my family that um, same feeling of like, oh no, we don't get to be together. And now we still have everybody. So, um, and you don't know how long it's going to stay that way. And so we're just enjoying, like I went out and played golf with my dad. I hadn't done that forever. Just watch movies and laugh with my mom. We just had a blast. It was so great to be home. Oh gosh, I love it. So tell me, like, what is your schedule? Are you just here on vacation or is there a season where you're going to, you kind of go back and forth? Um, so I'm in the off season right now for the X flats. And this is usually when I come home and guide, um, for the first time in nine years, I'm actually not guiding this summer. Wow. Good for you. You deserve it. (laughs) Yeah. It's, it's bittersweet for sure, because I have a ton of clients that are kind of peeved at me, but, um, but they're going in great hands with other great guides here, but no, it's, it's, I'm just here, you know, basically, off and on, I've got some travel with um, Bahio. I've got some travel with the X Flats, and but really, I'm here off and on until um, early October. Yeah, because Bahio is also you're. An, are you an ambassador for the sunglass company? Yeah, so I am an ambassador. I'm, I'm part of this um, team that Bahio put together called the Odyssey Team, which is um, two guys and two girls, and they are taking us around, and we're basically. Um, investigating all the different flats around the world. So Bahio in Spanish means, yeah, it's really super cool. Um, it's the brainchild of, of you know, the CEO and founder of Bahio, Al Perkinson. Um, and he, Bahio means the shallows. And so this company is just purely based around um, the flats. That's, that's really their whole focus about, and, you know, preserving, conserving, and understanding all these flats and the locations and, and um, the communities that live there. Um, so we're next, we're visiting Cuba in October, which will be great. Oh my gosh. That is what an incredible company. So what are you going to be doing in uh, Cuba? You know, I actually don't know the storyline yet for Cuba. So um, they're putting it together now. I believe the rumors I'm hearing is that we're doing some sort of woody wagon, station wagon road trip through um, up the coast of Cuba and, and fishing along the way. Um, and just, you know, diving in, trying to understand um, the local people and, and the guides there. We did, they haven't released any of the footage yet, but we, we did Honduras, um, Guanaja, the little island of Guanaja in April, which was amazing. And, and what a beautiful island and beautiful people that live there. And were you, what, were you targeting any fish over there? Yeah, so it was, it was, it was permit, you know, it was the same flat species we have in Ishclock. It was permit, tarpon, bonefish. Um, I caught my first Honduran permit, which was sweet. Um, and you know, the focus there is they had a real bad hurricane there a number of years ago. I think Mitch that essentially ripped out, you know, something like 80% of their mangrove life. And for for those of you guys that don't know, like mangroves, 
um, are the nursery for these flat species fish. So like when permit bonefish tarpon are too small to evade predators, they live in the roots of the mangroves that of course grow into the water and then and, and the ground underneath the water. So they use that. It's crucial for these, for the, the growth of these species. Wow. How cool. I mean, also, I mean, the fact that you're kind of being able to explore all these different places, also a learning moment to understand like how much, um, this, the ecosystem is so fragile and how that one small change can just be a ripple effect for other, um, problems. Um, so when will you be going back to X flats then? So you're doing this odyssey adventure for how many months? So the odyssey thing is actually quarterly. So we go on a trip every three months. Um, and so the next one is not, um, we had to push it back a little bit because one of our guys had a scheduling thing, but so the next one's in October. Um, we have a couple other Bahio small things this summer. Um, I'm headed um, to Jackson Hole to shoot with some of the Howler guys this week. And then I go back to Ishclack on August 1st for um, the Silver Scales permit tournament down there. And what is that? Yeah, it's a, it's a fishing tournament, kind of like the March Mercury or the Del Brown. Um, it's after the Del Brown and all the guys, like, you know, it's a lot of Belizean guys. It's a lot of Florida guys, some Mexico guys um, just all get together and um, we send a bunch of boats out on the water and we all try to hustle these permit around and try to catch some of them. Um, and it's the Grand Slam species. So it's tarpon, permit, bonefish. They all have different associated points. Um, I'll for sure get my butt whooped, but we're going to go have some fun. Well, do you get to, is it kind of like the Bass Pro? Do you guys get some t-shirts that you have to wear and have all the ambassadors on it? Is it going to be kind of like that? It is. Yeah, it's, um, we're hosting a big night at the Expats, a big dinner. We're one of the sponsors, but he was a sponsor. There's something like 40 or 50 sponsors for the tournament. Huge turnout this year. They've been doing it a long time. The organizers of the tournament are great guys, Mexican guys. Um, and yeah, I'm really looking forward to, to being back. My fishing partner is one of my favorite people ever, Paco American, um, who's the owner of Fly Fishing Tabasco, which is a, a baby tarpon fishery in Mexico. And if we've got any shot in hell, it's it's on Paco's shoulders. You can <laughs> I like to just put it on somebody else's shoulders as well. Like if we're not doing well in fishing, I'll be like, Justin, it's totally your fault. I mean, it's not me. It has everything to do with you. Oh, absolutely. I totally blamed my buddy Chad Sperry for for not poting him at the GoPro games, but it was, he fished a lot better than me. So he knows it's, uh, he knows it was on my shoulders. Yeah. Let's talk about the GoPro games. What exactly was that? The GoPro games is an awesome event. I came back early just to, just to see all my friends really that were going to be here. It used to be the Teva mountain games for years that took place in Vail. And then GoPro took over the games. I want to say like in 13 or 14 and immediately added fishing to it. Um, so there's a casting competition, um, that leads to an eventual fishing competition. And then a few years ago, Rick Mesmer came up with this beautiful idea um, where he did this thing that Yeti sponsors called Yeti Catch Wars. And there's 10 boats that all have to be really, really whitewater savvy. And it's two man teams. And you row a section of the Upper Eagle, which is, you know, our, our prized freestone here in the Vale Valley. And it's the Eagle's sporty and rocky and rough. It's, it's raft only. Um, and it's high water basically, or just under high water. And so it's a six mile beat is the catch wars. It's a two man team. Um, so you row that beat, you have to do it in two hours, which is a push to fish to do two hours, six miles. Um, and then you switch and the other, the other person rows and then you fish, um, and you count up your fish and you get to measure three per round. And it's just this blast of a white water cold wave streamer throwing you know little one day fishing tournaments so much fun how did you do 
We got fourth. Um, we were, yeah, no, we were like, you know, I literally came in off the plane um, on a Wednesday night and the tournament was Thursday morning. And so Sperry, my, my best friend and, and compadre had scouted the river a bit and, um, you know, did his best job. I think we were out outmatched in the fishiness as far as like guys had their finger on the pulse. Our guiding mentors, um, we call him dad, but his name's Ryan Schmidt and, and our other buddy D-Bus got third just above us. We were two fish behind them. Um, and then some other really good friends took first. So it was a lot of fun. Oh my gosh. So now what's on your bucket list? Like, do you have any, like any other new adventures that you're like, okay, I want to come, maybe it's coming to Missoula, even though it doesn't yes. sound exciting, but yeah. What is I, your next bucket list of things to this do? This is going to sound crazy, Lauren, but I, um, have never really fished in Montana. I, okay. Um, There's a problem there. I know huge problem. And I've met like literally probably 80% of our lodge guests this year are Montana folks. So um, I've got to do like a big loop and see everybody and fish. And I think I might be planning a a Montana trip at the end of August, maybe um, when all my guide buddies are super salty and ready to take a break. Um, So I'd love to come through and and see you guys in Missoula. That would be great. Absolutely. You know, we'll show you around the waters, except right now, Justin's really into pike fishing, which actually, if you're really into permit, you might really like pike fishing because it's a really um, all sightseeing. So it's really fun. I have a total huge interest in pike. I just yeah. keep hearing about this bite from, you know, like I'm, I'm a love snook fishing because it's my favorite bite in, in the game. And, and I keep hearing friends being like, oh, you need to pike fish. You got to pike fish, like the bite, the bite, the bite. Um, and I know it's kind of one of those things too, where it's like, you're putting in a lot of time. Yeah. Um, so that's become my favorite way to fish. Trout is, you know, my home, my lighthouse, my beacon. I'll always love trout fishing, but I definitely would love to uh, go struggle on some pike waters and, and hopefully feel that bite at some point. Well, we can do it both. We can do it all here. Um, so Jesse, what is one of your favorite or, you know, I always like to say, what is your favorite fly? And I guess it's like, it doesn't even have to be that most successful one, but like, which one is kind of like your, your lucky fly that you like to use? Mm. We call it the venom, but it's, it's really, it's really a raghead. Um, and it's, the brainchild of a bunch of people in, in the Yucatan and, and mostly up in Punta Allen. Um, a good friend of mine, Patrick, you know, ties it really well and taught me how to tie it. It's, it's about the size of, you know, and profile of like your ring fingernail or your pinky nail. It's a small fly. Um, I think a lot of people, you know, depending on where you are, you throw a lot of big flies. Like in Honduras, we were throwing these huge flies at these permit. Um, in Mexico and Ishkak, we throw these, these small little crabs um, with dumbbell eyes that sink quick and don't make a big splash. And um, that's definitely my favorite fly. It's a fun fly to tie and it's an easy fly to cast. Um, and every now and then they they bite it. That's good. I mean, that's all you really need. I, I always, mm-hmm. my biggest fly that I love are just anything with flashaboo. I don't know why. Yeah. I just love yeah. a good old flashaboo. Like Justin will give me a fly and he's like, this is going to be a good one. I'm like, ugh, it's just black and I can't really see anything. Like, don't you think we need to put a little flash of boo in there? So like when it, when the sun hits. Flash of boo is so fun to say too. It is. It's like the best word ever. If I ever had, I mean, which I'm never going to have any more children, but I would probably name my kid flash of boo. I'd nickname it flash of boo because it is such a fun day. It's funny to be like that with the material. I'm like that with ice pearl dub. Like every single one of my flies always has it on there and I should probably start tying a few without it. But um, you get addicted to our little like idiosyncrasies of how we like to tie, you know? Yeah, it is. It's it's an art and I, I love it. I'm 
trying to get a little bit better at it, but also the vice seems to be pretty busy with the hands of my husband. Um, so before we kind of, I love to hear just one more fishing story from you, Jesse. Yeah. I, it's so funny because I, I couldn't think of one leading up to it. And then it's so funny. We were just talking about time flies because this really awesome story happened at the lodge, um, a couple weeks before I left and you just made me think of it. Um, the beauty, the beauty of talking. The beauty of just rambling. Um, so these guys were down at the lodge. Um, a group from Yellow Dog, actually the president of Yellow Dog, Jim Klug, came down with like, I think, 10 of his um, good buddies. And they were just all really good guys. And, you know, I think with this story, it's there. it goes into this conversation of like, for the most part, people that permit fish and travel to fish are, are relatively wealthy. And that's unfortunate that it's that, it's that narrowed down. And I think there's opportunity to change that, but that ties into this story a little bit. So um, these guys were down and they're really, really great guys. They've been successful in a bunch of different worlds of business. And one of the, a couple of the original investors of Howler Brothers were there and just some great guys. And some of them were experienced and some of them weren't too. And we're tying flies the first night. And and one of, one of the guys who I just got such a kick out of was like, oh, I've never tied a fly, you know, of any kind ever. <laughs> and he's sort of watching me do it. And very quickly... The leader of the group, Eric Yonke, comes up with this idea. He goes, Chris, go tie a fly right now. And if you catch a fish on that fly, I'll donate, you know, five grand to your favorite charity. Um, wow. And they all started around and very quickly it went from, I think, $5,000 to something like thirty-five dollars or $40,000. I can't remember the exact oh number. Oh my gosh. But they were going to, but I was not allowed to help. I was allowed to give him three verbal instructions about what to do, but I wasn't allowed to touch the vice. I wasn't allowed to touch any material. Um, and I came up with the idea. I was like, right, you're going to tie shrimp. It's all about just, if you can get legs on this fly and the, and eventually morphed into where it didn't just have to be a snapper. It had to be a bonefish, um, which is, you know, bonefish you do everything right. They'll eat it, but you got to do everything right. And the fly has to be, has to be a look like something that's alive. Um, and so he slaps this fly together. There's glue everywhere. There was all <laughs> sorts of shit. Like, you know, it just was a disaster, but bless his soul. He figured out how to, how to put those legs on and glue them on and do the whole thing. The fly just looked like water trash. It was just terrible. But, um, he then committed his portion of the trip to being like, all right, my goal now is to, you know, get wounded warriors, 40 grand. It's not to catch a permit. And, um, and he did it. He took that fly out. The guide, Julio, I remember we showed him the fly on the dock and Julio was like, we're not fishing that basically. And I had to like <laughs> explain to Julio how important this was. And very quickly, I love our guides. Their Mexican guides are all about hospitality. They're not about, um, you know, their own machismo and, and, and getting their guests. So it's great. But Julio totally dove in with them. Um, they went out, him and Jim with Julio that day, and they caught a bonefish on that fly. And I mean, we caught a lot of permit that week, but I think the biggest celebration we had at the Palapa um, was for that bonefish he caught on that fly. And, and then for those guys to, you know, to donate all that money to Wounded Warriors, which is just an amazing project, was one of my favorite moments as a lodge owner to date, for sure. Oh my gosh. I mean, was Project Healing, was it Project Healing Waters? Is that the one that you did or Wounded Warrior? Man, I'd have to check with Eric, but I'm pretty sure it was Wounded Warriors. Oh, project. okay. I was just curious. I wonder if they like, all of a sudden they just like woke up, you know, in the morning and the, the receptionist was like checking the accounts and was just like, holy smokes, like yeah. what happened in one night? Because I wonder if they just like dropped it. Absolutely. And so funny. 
of course, after he catches the fish, Eric whispers into my ear, like, hey, buddy, we were donating it regardless, you know, like um, where I thought all these stakes were on the line. But as soon as they come up with an idea, this is a great group of just really generous, thoughtful people. And um, as soon as they come up with an idea for charity, you know, they're they're always really really generous with helping, but that was just such a fun moment and and a cool story, I think. Well, and also like what a great way to kind of keep the eye on the prize, so to say. I mean, for the entire trip, you're like, okay, like what are we going to do out there? Because sometimes you're like, we're going to try and catch a permit, which is really hard, but to have the stakes that high too is super fun. I mean, even though they were going to donate it anyways, um, it's always kind of fun to have a fun game like that. Uh, Absolutely. So Jesse, if people are wanting to start booking their trips, um, what dates are available and how do they do that? Yeah. So um, dates that are available, you know, you can book us at the xflats.com, T-H-E-X-F-L-A-T-S.com. You can book me, you can book on Instagram. Honestly, we do a lot of bookings on Instagram at at the underscore xflats. However, um, as of a couple days ago, our spring is completely full. So February 1 through through about um, towards the end of May is, is, is pretty full up. The end of May and early June has some room. Um, and, you know, kind of one of the misconceptions, in my opinion, of, of the permit world is that they think that spring is the best time. Spring is a great time to permit fish for sure. You can bet on good weather there, but um, some of the best permit fishing I've ever seen is in the fall, in the early winter of North fronts. And then the summertime, holy smokes, the big tarpon show up and, and the permit fishing is great. So, um, even though we're full for, for next spring, for the most part, you know, for 2023, we're taking some bookings for the spring already. And, uh, and also our fall has some room, our early winter has some room, um, and next summer as well. Which actually, I mean, that's the time where I'd want to go in winter. I mean, yeah. by the time oh, in Missoula, yeah, like, I'm like, I need some vitamin D. I don't even care if it's not even that hot out there. I just want to be on a beach. Oh, straight. I'm totally with you. And that, that December permit fishing can be awesome. It can be so good. The water slicks out. The wind's a lot lower in, in the winter than in the spring. Like the spring's warmer and you can bet on sun a little bit better but the wind's up a lot. And, you know, so, you know, depending on skill level, some people, you know, don't like the wind. I think the wind tends to help if, if you can use it right. But um, we tend to get calmer weather um, in those winter months sometimes, which is, which is a lot of fun. You should sign me up because then I'll send both me. I'll take Justin out there. I'll bring Meredith and my other sister and her, um, her husband, and we'll make it a big family affair. That'd be super let's fun. Do let's do it. And let's oh, make it happen. Oh, oh. Tell Justin I will tie him my personal <laughs> flies. I'll be with him on the boat. We'll we'll make it happen. Like I never guarantee permit, but uh, we will we will make it happen. And you'll probably beat him to the punch. Actually, I was gonna say I'm like one of the, I'm like I feel like it's because my energy. I'm just like okay, let's fish. But I have to say, like if someone was like screaming at me and was like strip strip, I'd be like, oh, please don't yell at me. Like, <laughs> yeah. I promise, I'm no. trying. But no, that's I always talk with our guides about being calm, but it's so tough. <laughs> it's so hard. Like, I mean, even Justin does it to me. I'm like, just calm down, Justin. I, I'm gonna bring it to the boat. But um, and also maybe Jesse, we just need to contact our old high school and be like, hey, it's when is career day? We're gonna come out there and <laughs> talk about well, fishing because maybe that would have changed. Well. I mean, we are where we are, no matter what. Yeah. But maybe it changed somebody else's idea of like what it means to, sure. to graduate. I don't know if I invite a lot of college dropouts to career days, but um, <laughs> I'll definitely show up. I think you're doing pretty amazing with the way that life has turned out for you, Jesse. And um, I can't thank you enough for joining me today. And um, let's be in touch for when, for when you come to Missoula. 
Absolutely, Lauren. Congratulations to you and Justin. What a great podcast. I'll, I'll be listening for a long time. And oh, you know, it was just a pleasure talking with you. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Go to thefebruaryroom.com where you can access a complete library of our podcast and read more about our guests, their fishing stories, and favorite fly patterns. We're always looking for exceptional fly fishing yarns. And if you have one to spin, shoot us an email at info at thefebruaryroom.com. The February Room is always free, but if you feel like throwing a nickel in the pond, we appreciate any additional listener support. For companies and individuals interested in sponsorship opportunities, please contact us for our media kit. Thanks for stopping by the February Room, and we'll see you down here next week.